The scripture today comes from Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 2. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kibar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to the nations of rebels, who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, Happy New Year, Exilic Church. It's great to be bringing in the new year with you this morning. Um, if you don't know me, I'm, uh, one of, I have the honor and distinction of being the only part-time pastor at Exilic. And so I'm not here every Sunday. My, my full-time job is with Reformed Theological Seminary, so I'm often in other churches. Um, uh, but um, I haven't been here recently, actually, because I've had a situation with my parents, which uh, they're, they're wonderful people and they love God, so um, don't, don't, don't get a downer over the situation. But uh, my dad got a cancer diagnosis, and so he's handled that with great faith and joy. So the past several Sundays, I've been uh, back with them in South Carolina. But as we look at um, this passage this morning, we do so because it has been our tradition since I've been at Exilic, since 2018, uh, for these first sermons of the new year to consider the meaning of our name. And so Pastor Aaron asked me to preach, um, once again, uh, in that same vein, to consider the meaning of the name Exilic. What does it mean to be a church in exile? And there are several things that it means to be a church in exile. What do we mean by being um, in exile? One is that uh, while we're in exile, uh, we'll continue to experience death. Death has been defeated for us by Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection, um, ultimately. But the reality of it is, just as my parents are wrestling with the realities of death and this cancer diagnosis, all of us will experience death. Death has been defeated But until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and consummates all of his promises with a new earth and a new heaven and ends this period of exile, we'll experience death. Um, Another thing is, and this is very palpable for us in New York right now and in the world, in this state of exile globally, we only experience justice in a provisional way. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is politically and socially, We do the best that we can to deliver justice through our courts, through our legislators, the way we organize our society. 
But there is no perfect justice available in this life. There will always be a lack of that perfect resolution and perfect peace. That doesn't mean that we don't pursue it at all. We should be pursuing justice. But it does mean that we're realistic and, and, and are not, do, do not become cynical because we realize that perfect justice only uh, will be found in a new heaven and new earth when this period of exile is over. And of course, there's this other aspect of exile that's reminded, uh, that we're reminded of today as we have the Lord's Supper. That is, when this period of exile ends, we will behold God face to face. We still have more joy knowing God through Christ today than is imaginable, and certainly more than those who do not know him. But our joy will only increase, and we'll behold him face to face. He dwells with us now by his Spirit. He gives us signs, such as we have here in the Lord's Supper today, in fellowship in the church, receiving of his word. But when exile ends, we'll behold God face to face. So this period of exile is a period in which we live. It's what we're going to consider at our conference. So the plug for that conference, we already have 143 people uh, signed up. And we have three weeks to go, so please join us for that. It should be a good time. Um, <clears throat> but while we're in this period of wrestling with death, while we're in this period of dealing with imperfect political and social structures, while we're in the period of not beholding God face to face, and we could go on and on with what characterizes this period of exile, while we're in this period, we need to have a initial and continually renewed vision of God to thrive in exile. We need to have an initial and a continually renewed vision of God to thrive in exile. Now, I mentioned to you that um, my father is struggling with cancer, so I went down to be with my parents, um, and while I was there, and he, he's okay, but he had a minor fall, and so um, once we got him up for that fall and we put him in his bed, he has a therapy dog named Storm. And this little therapy dog, as soon as my dad got up in that bed, uh, Storm jumped up in the bed. I thought it was something off of like Alaska Highway Patrol from Nat Geo, like a rescue dog. He jumps up in this bed and he starts like at my dad's feet and starts like you know, hitting him with his nose and like nudging him all the way up, moves all the way up to his head and then starts like licking his face. Because my dad wasn't being responsive to him. So he was like trying to, my dad, he was alive, but he was like trying to revive him. And this dog is quite old itself. And so I was really impressed by what I was seeing, this incredible therapy dog, Storm. Well, as the day unfolded, I went out to the garage to run an errand and Storm, uh, to get something for my parents. And Storm followed me to the garage. And on the way back in the garage, I noticed he was having trouble getting back to the door. My parents have a ramp there, you walk up. There's a car beside the ramp, and he kept loop running around the car in circles, or just walking around the car in circles looking for the door. So I said to my parents, uh, what's going on with Storm? And they said, well, he's blind, so he's, he's lost in the garage. And I had to pick him up and put him on the ramp, and then he kind of took off. But see, he had lost the scent of my father. And having lost the scent of my father, he was now without direction and perspective. He was blind. When he had the send of my father, he jumped up and was trying to revive him and being the therapy dog he's meant to be. But he lost perspective because he was blind. Well, this is an illustration of us in exile and why we need this initial and continually renewed vision of God. Because we can lose perspective in this state of exile. 
we can lose the sense, or if you will, the vision of who God is. Um, so what we see happening here is God coming to Ezekiel when his people are in the initial stages of exile, a big official exile, where they've been exiled from Jerusalem and Israel um, into Babylon. Babylon is a place in the Bible and in history that is famous for its beauty, its riches, and its power. And here is Ezekiel coming of age, 30 years of age. He's from a priestly family. And for him as a priest, this would have been the time when he would have entered into his calling to be a priest. He has no temple, though, because the temple was destroyed in the exile. And yet God appears to him. It's a sign of God's grace. He appears to Ezekiel uh, with this great vision of who he is in order to counter the riches and the glory and the power and the wealth of Babylon. This is why God graciously appears to Ezekiel, to bless Ezekiel with this vision of himself, and therefore through Ezekiel to bless his people in Babylon. Now, as God appears to Ezekiel, I want to just summarize the vision. The vision is an elaborate vision, so I commend it to you to study in community groups or at home. I I thought about reading all the way through it, but it's really a mind-boggling vision that's captured the imagination of artists throughout history. Raphael has done a thing, a painting of Ezekiel's vision here and others. Um, But let me just summarize it for you. First, the way the text summarizes this vision. Ezekiel himself summarizes the vision at the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, when he says, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so is the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So Ezekiel says this vision that he saw was like the rainbow after the storm, after, the, after, after rain. It was bright, it was beautiful. So that's a summary that he gives. Notice he says it's the likeness of the glory of the Lord, not yet face to face. This is the approximation of God's glory. And so let me give you some more details, some more of a summary of the details of the vision itself. What is it that Ezekiel sees that is beautiful and glorious like a rainbow? What he sees is this incredible uh, vision of a creature, um, four creatures, each with four faces. So standing up as, as human beings. And these four-faced creatures, one face is the face of a man. Another face is the face of a lion. Another face is the face uh, image of an ox. And the last is the head of an eagle. And these four creatures have four wings. Um, and they're um, four wheels with, associated with these creatures. And there's thunder and lightning coming out, and the image of the Holy Spirit guiding uh, these creatures throughout the earth. And above these four creatures, there is this divine being. And we don't know that much more about this divine being, but it's clear from the text that it is a representation of God himself. What is the point of this image, uh, of this vision that Ezekiel has? Well, you have man, ox, uh, lion, and eagle. So you have human beings kind of over all the animal kingdom. You have the greatest of the wild beast in the lion. You have the greatest of the domestic beast 
if you will, in the ox. And then you have the eagle as the greatest in the sky with this image of God over them. And the point is that God reigns over all the earth with a glory, a riches, a power, and a beauty far surpassing Babylon. And the image is of this, uh, some people refer to it as a chariot, going wherever the Spirit leads throughout the earth. And this is the point for Ezekiel, that God reigns over all. And God appears to Ezekiel with this vision because the God who reigns over all, as glorious as he is, is a God who has chosen to exercise his reign in fellowship with his people. And he's appearing to Ezekiel when Ezekiel's in exile to bring Ezekiel into the purposes of God, to have Ezekiel fulfill his calling and to minister his word to his people. We should pause here to say what an incredible thing this is about God. Some people say, why doesn't God just snap his fingers and change everything? He absolutely could do that. He doesn't do that because he, he desires to work in fellowship with his people. He's inherently relational in his nature. He's more concerned about the relationship than he is about the results in this sense. And it's very important here that we pause and make a comment about uh, the difference between purpose and calling. It's a subtle difference, but for those who are Christians, it is a significant difference. I love purpose, by the way, um, uh, setting goals and those sorts of things. So no, nothing wrong with using that word. But consider this. This microphone I'm using now has a purpose. Uh, your phone in your pocket has a purpose. This notebook has a purpose. This music stand has a purpose. But none of those things have a calling. None of them have a calling. What's the difference? Calling means that there is one who has called. Calling is inherently relational. What it means is that God has called somebody into relationship with him to fulfill one of his purposes. But it's not something that we can ever discover outside of fellowship with God. We can have a purpose. We can have things that we're good at, finance, law, medicine, media, whatever it is for you. And you can say, this is my purpose. What's wrong with just kind of fulfilling your purpose on your own? Can't that be fun? Can't that be rewarding? Well, sure it can be, but consider this. If you're in a place like New York City that is rich, powerful, and beautiful, and you're surrounded by rich, powerful, and beautiful people, and you're out trying to fulfill your purpose, how is this going to go? Well, on the one, on the one hand, it could be going well for you. You could be killing it, as we say right? You could be killing it. And if you're killing it, there could be a tendency to just indulge that you're killing it. Enjoy life, uh, enjoy your success, and so on, and, and that's good. Um, the problem with that is it, there always comes a time when you're not killing it. There always comes a time when life starts killing you. Either when you're younger and things shift for you in your opportunities, in your, in your work, or whatever, or when you're older and just your body just starts to decline. There comes a time when you're not going to be killing it. And don't we see so many stories of famous people? We could, go, we could narrate many, many, many who have everything, and then they realize they actually have nothing because they lost the taste of satisfaction 
from all the things they were enjoying, it just got stale to them and there was nothing left. So that's one danger of just resting in this idea of kind of fulfilling your purpose apart from God. On the opposite spectrum is you may be in despair right now. New York City can be a tough place. There's a lot of powers, a lot of riches, a lot of beauty, a lot of opportunity. And sometimes we're not killing it. We're not making it. We don't feel like we're getting it the way other people are. And so we can drift into despair as if we don't matter at all and become greatly discouraged and greatly depressed. Why? Because we're only looking to ourselves and to others by comparison, and we have no greater purpose for what we're doing. See, calling is not like that. Calling is not like that. Calling is responding to God relationally. And God always cares more about his relationship with you than he does using you for a result. He will get results from you. Things will happen. But that's not what's most important to him. He cares more about you than the results. And you know what that means for you? That means no matter what happens to you as you pursue your calling, your joy will remain. Your joy with God will remain. Your future and eternity will remain. You will have an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade because you are in a relationship being called by God. And what you're doing, you're doing for him and in fellowship with him. So this is the vision that God gives to Ezekiel, that he would enter into his calling. Now let's consider briefly Ezekiel's response to this vision. The response is straightforward and rather dramatic. So in Ezekiel 2, 1, um, I was going to be the end of, end of uh, yeah, Ezekiel 2, verse 1, um, he says, And when I saw it, I fell on my face. He falls down before God. This vision of the glory of God is so massive that Ezekiel just hits it. And this is a pattern throughout Scripture. Uh, we see something similar with Moses. We see something similar with Isaiah. We see something similar with Paul. It's a pattern throughout the history of the church. When we as God's people, individually, when each one of us really behold the glory of God, we're just struck by how much we're not God, by how unworthy we are, perhaps how sinful we are. This is what happens if we truly behold who God is. But it doesn't end there. And another aspect of God's grace that is so palpable and something so awesome about this great and glorious God that we serve is he doesn't look at Ezekiel and shame him and ask him to beg for mercy. He doesn't demand that Ezekiel crawl his way back from all his transgressions. He doesn't demand that Ezekiel enter into servitude. This is what earthly lords do to subjects beneath them, right? This is what they do. But what does God do? God says, Ezekiel says, recounting this, He said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Now take note of this. We've all seen the movies, right, where some knight or uh, some other, some dignitary from a foreign land will come into the presence of an ancient king. And what do they do when they come in their presence? They either bow or they take a knee or something like that, and they look down, and they stay down there. They stay down there until the king tells them to get up, right? This is what's happening here. 
Ezekiel is struck by this image of God. He hits the deck, and then God lifts him up. But then when God lifts him up, he, he commands him to stand up, and he says, I will speak with you. And that's very significant. I will have fellowship with you. And, this, and Ezekiel says, at that moment, God grants him new life. The Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. This is a vision from 2,500 years ago. It is a different place in the history of God's people. But this same reality exists for you today, that when you encounter God for who he really is, if you see him for who he really is, he also will speak to you. When you recognize who he really is, he will also speak to you to tell you that he loves you, to ask you to hear his voice, to say he's going to give you a calling and a future. This God does with his people as a pattern. And so we see something of the glory and majesty and also of the love and the grace of God in Ezekiel's response. Well, how do we appropriate this today? What does it mean for us? Well, the writer of the Hebrews, when he reflects back on all these great visions of the past, this New Testament writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament, he says these things. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills what we see in this vision. God reigning over the earth, symbolized by the man, the lion, the oxen, the eagle. Here the writer of the Hebrews says, Jesus, he has been appointed heir of all things. The Apostle Paul says, Jesus reigns over all things on behalf of the church. And what we do with this today is we receive Jesus as the one whom we, in whom we behold God. We find our vision of God in Jesus Christ. There's a great story of someone closer to our time period than to Ezekiel, still a couple hundred years from us, and that's William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, in 1785, was in the English Parliament, and at 24 years of age, he was killing it, right? That's an accomplishment today. If you're in our legislature, when any legislature at any level, as a 24-year-old, he was extremely successful. Um, but um, he, he took a trip to Europe with a friend who was a Christian named Isaac Milner. And while in Europe, uh, he started talking about his relationship with God, with Milner, and he came to a place of great despair about where he was as a person. Great despair. Um, to the point where he realized he was far from God and he felt like all that he accomplished was even meaningless. So he's actually kind of depressive. So he gets back from this trip to Europe and then he goes and visits another friend who was prime minister. This is one sign that you're killing it, right? When you go to Europe with your friend who's a Cambridge tutor, you come back, you call it the prime minister of England. That's like, <laughs> you know, this is the kind of person, right? Um, he talks to his friend William Pitt and William Pitt says, hey, what's your problem, man? I'm paraphrasing. Uh, 
you can't leave politics. You're, like, you're, you're killing it. You know, again, paraphrasing. And we need you. You have gifts in this area, right? So Pitt tells him that. But he finds final resolution when he returns to one of his past mentors that he had, he had kind of lost relationship with. Early on in his life, he was mentored by John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader, a, slave, a captain of a slave ship, who became a Christian and later wrote the hymn Amazing Grace and became a great abolitionist for, uh, uh, for the slave trade. And it was in conversation with Newton uh, where Newton really persuaded Wilberforce, stay with the new vision you have of God, yes, but also stay in politics, but now do it not with your own purpose, but with God's calling. Stay there to serve God in fellowship with God. And in 1787, Wilberforce resolved that he would see the slave trade abolished in the British Empire. Now, that was a massive resolution. Here's something a lot of people don't know. I believe it was just maybe like 2018, you can Google this, that the British finished paying off the bonds they drew down in order to pay for, to buy slaves out of bondage. That's how massive an undertaking that was. That the financial obligation, the way that was done at that time for Britain was only settled like five or six years ago. It's incredible if you think about it, right? So Wilberforce now, in call, from receiving this calling from God to, to serve God, he labors. And in 1833, finally, the slave trade is abolished, but it's after his death. It's well after his death. 56 years from the point in time where he resolved to receive this call from God to move away from his own purpose in politics, to serve the Lord to abolish the slave trade. It was only after his death that it came to pass. Now, I used to think that this was sort of a sad story, that Wilberforce never got to see the fruit of his labors, that he never got to realize uh, his intentions. And of course, it is fun when we do see the fruit of our labors, but the older I've gotten and the more I've thought about it and studying this passage and others, I've come to see that this, may, that this was certainly, I think, actually a peculiar sort of grace in the life of Wilberforce. Why? Because, you know, if he'd seen slavery come to an end in his own lifetime, um, perhaps he would have made the mistake of thinking that serving God for that result was the absolute best thing he could do, that that was what was most important. But God not allowing him to see it in his lifetime, he's constantly brought back to the reality that what's most important of all is my relationship with God. What's most important is my relationship with God. Now, of course, it would have been great if in God's providence, slavery in the British Empire had been abolished sooner. But my point is about this more personal point for us. We so often can make the mistake that God only is interested in using us to get something done. And that's not true. God tells Ezekiel in this passage, he says to him, you're going to be a prophet. But he says, you're going to be a prophet to a people who aren't going to listen to you. But he says, you know what? Verse 5, whether they hear you or they refuse to hear you for their rebellious house, they'll know that a prophet has been among them. In other words, he's telling Ezekiel, I'm not interested in the results so much as I'm interested in walking with you in it. 
And that's true for you this morning as well. So how do we move forward with this? One, receive a fresh vision of God in Jesus Christ. If you come to that place where you've beheld the beauty, the power, the holiness, the glory of God in Jesus, and it's just knocked you out. Like Ezekiel, you've fallen down. And have you come to the, have you come to the place where you've heard God say, no, don't stay in that place of, of shame or guilt, whatever it is, but here I love you. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, I restore you. Enter into fellowship with me. Become my child. Stand up. You're part of my family. God never, if God's really speaking to you, he never leaves you down there. If you think God's spoken to you and you're hobbling in some corner of shame, that's not God. Because God doesn't ever leave somebody in that place. That's the evil one. The one whom God speaks to, he always invites into fellowship with himself. So have you received this vision of God and have you responded to it? Um, have you committed yourself in the new year to renewing your vision of God in corporate worship. This is why it's so important for us to worship together. We need to be continually renewed in our vision of God because this world outside of us in New York City, it is rich, it is beautiful, it is powerful, it is alluring, and a lot of that is all very good. We're for so much of that, but it is no substitute for God. And if you enter into your work with just your own purpose and not in calling with God, you'll eventually be crushed. Commit yourself to renewed fellowship each Sunday so that your vision of God would be renewed. And then finally, in line with that, move on from purpose into calling. God has something specific for you to do in relationship with him that's unique for you. Seek his face, enter into his calling for your life, and know that he always desires that fellowship with you more than any fruit that comes from it. And now we're brought to this table. Just be assured of his love for you. Ezekiel saw a tremendous vision with these wheels and these creatures going to and fro in the earth with thunder and lightning coming out. We're on the other side of that. We're in a place of fulfillment. Jesus lived for you. He died for you. He's been raised for you. He rules over all things for you. And he set before you bread and wine today. This is a sign. He dwells with you in it. And it's first and foremost to bear witness to how much he loves you until he ends this period of exile and renews all things. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Let us commit ourselves this day to renewing our vision week by week for you and to enter into our callings with a fresh sense of your love for us and the future you've laid up for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.